I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Robert Bishara, a critical psychologist and professor. Today he's discussing his new book, Freud and Said, Contrapunctal Psychoanalysis as Liberation Praxis, recently published by Palgrave Macmillan. His books also include Decolonial Psychoanalysis Towards Critical Islamophobia Studies from Rutledge, A Critical Introduction to Psychology, and Critical Psychology Praxis Psychosocial Non-Alignment to Modernity Coloniality. Dr. Bashara is also a filmmaker and artist. His films include Alchemy in Hyde Park and Cryptic Reflections. Visit his website, robertbashara.com, for more. That's R-O-B-E-R-T-B-E-S-H-A-R-A.com. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. From Chapart Books, 2019. There are only a few copies left of the hardback edition. So grab them now. They're on sale for $12 at Chapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A 2-3-C-A-R-L. Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net. That's D-R-V-A-N-E-S-S-A-S-I-N-C-L-A-I-R.net. Or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Thanks so much, first of all, for for inviting me again. I I really enjoyed our last uh, conversation, uh, talking about decolonial psychoanalysis and other topics. But I also interviewed interviewed you on my podcast, so we had two recorded conversations before this one. That's right. I'll link to both of them in the text accompanying this one. Now we're talking about your new book. Well, you've had a couple new books, but the newest book, Freud and Said. Yeah, so this one, Freud and Said, uh, Contrapuntal Psychoanalysis as a Liberation Praxis. Um, this is basically a sequel of Decolonial Psychoanalysis. And it's actually part of a trilogy. So I think I'm, this is the first time I'm really publicly saying this. But uh, there's a third part in the works, hopefully in the next two years, it should be coming out. Um, and I'm calling the trilogy kind of liberation psychoanalysis. So uh, in the first book, Decolonial Psychoanalysis, uh, I look at what I call the ideology of counterterrorism, Islamophobia, Islamophilia. And it's a kind of a mouthful, but it really captures uh, this kind of theoretical link between the war on terror discourse on one hand and um, Islamophobia and how they're you know, theoretically linked. Uh, and so in decolonial psychoanalysis, I show that the war on terror discourse is actually uh, ideologically, phantasmatically supported by the Islamophobia, Islamophilia fantasy, right? So there's that discourse fantasy combination, and that's how the ideology works. And uh, I talk about the subjectivity of US Muslims and how they resist this ideology uh, in terms of kind of uh, Lacan's conception of the real. So they're kind of um, existing in that gap between the discourse and the fantasy, in other words, 
right? Um, so in this, in the sequel, uh, uh, Freud and Said, I explore actually something that I write about in decolonial psychoanalysis, but I decided to expand it based on a recommendation from a dear colleague and someone that was on my dissertation committee, uh, Hatem Bezien, who's interviewing me uh, incidentally on Sunday, by the way. Um, so in decolonial psychoanalysis, I wrote a little, I wrote a little bit about um, the connection between um, Freud and Said in terms of Freud's influence on Said's uh, thinking, especially in the book Orientalism, which is his third and most popular book. Um, so uh, Hatem told me, like, this is super interesting. Why don't you expand this? And I, I took note of that when he said that to me um, a number of years ago. But it took me a while to kind of think about it, do research, and um, develop this further into a whole book, right? So that's, that's uh, basically, I wanted to explore that kind of um, influence, legacy, Freud's uh, influence on Said, the influence of psychoanalysis on post-colonialism more generally, because these two fields uh, tend to be seen as kind of um, in a kind of theoretical tension, and perhaps there's some of that, but I think that um, there's a lot of interesting overlap that is worth exploring, and this is partly what I do in uh, Freud and Said. Another dimension that's very important, uh, which is, I think, um, kind of an additional uh, layer that complexifies my analysis in decolonial psychoanalysis is kind of thinking about the materiality of oppression and violence through this conception of uh, racialized or racial capitalism. So basically, I'm situating this ideology uh, within this what I call an apparatus to kind of talk about the ideology, but also the materiality of this uh, oppression and violence. So thinking about exploitation, alienation, kind of classical Marxian terms, but also adding the dimension of dehumanization uh, of what I call the non-European or racialized lumpen proletariat, right? So, um, so basically building on my previous analysis, but complexifying it, adding more dimensions, and of course, exploring uh, the relationship between Freud and Said in, you know, uh, fully as, as, as far as I, I could um, find based on uh, my research. So that's kind of the, the overview. I can talk more details based on what you want to know. Yeah, but it's really filling like an important space in psychoanalytic theory because I haven't seen anything written very extensively on Freud and Said ever before. Yeah, so it's been explored in like articles here and there, but there hasn't been um, a book length exploration. So in the first chapter, uh, which is on what I call post or decolonial psychoanalysis, I kind of do like a historical survey or literature review of the connections between uh, postcolonialism or decoloniality and psychoanalysis. So looking at, you know, Fanon, Manoni, Memi, but even starting before that and looking at the work of Willem Reich, who's kind of uh, overlooked, right? Um, because he had interesting analyses of fascism and writing as he saw fascism on the rise in Germany. Uh, so I do kind of a, the first chapter, kind of a, a more general overview, but then by this, uh, the second, third and fourth chapters, which are the body chapters of the book, uh, are the ones where I, I actually explore in depth the relationship between Freud and Said. So the first chapter uh, looks at uh, Edward Said's second book, which is called Beginnings. Uh, it's not as famous as Orientalism, which is his third book. And in Beginnings, you can actually see Said drawing on Freud a lot in his analysis, uh, in particular, the interpretation of dreams, which clearly Said loves um, as a work of literature. I mean, Said's training is in textual criticism. So he's looking at Freud, not only as a scientist and as someone that invented psychoanalysis, but also uh, as a writer, as a creative writer, and how he, uh, he authors uh, psychoanalysis through his writing style. And basically the argument that he makes in beginnings is that uh, Freud's writing style in, in the interpretation of dreams uh, is not only a scientific introduction to psychoanalysis and how we interpret dreams in the clinic, but it's also uh, a sort of, weirdly enough, an encounter with the unconscious uh, through its own style. 
So that's what, what makes it kind of uh, an exemplary modern text and kind of revolutionary in a way that its style actually captures its message. Um, so in a way, Said distinguishes between Freud's intention, maybe his intention was to be scientific and to impress the world with his scientific knowledge, but his method is actually more creative and perhaps we can even say surreal to draw on your work um, in the sense that the text itself, for anyone who has read it, reads like a dream, right? Um, uh, so it almost has that dreamlike structure. So that style of writing ends up influencing um, uh, Edward Said's writing in Orientalism, and also ends up influencing how Edward Said theorizes Orientalism. But the influence is unconscious, and this is what I kind of show. So even though uh, Freud is explicitly cited in beginnings, that second book, he's kind of repressed in Orientalism uh, because he's cited three times only in the text. And yet there's a whole section in the book on latent Orientalism and manifest Orientalism. So anyone familiar with the interpretation of dreams would easily um, uh, realize or recognize that those are terms from Freud regarding latent dream thoughts, and manifest dream content, right? Uh, so I can say more about that if you're interested, but just to give an overview and the third um, kind of a part of this trilogy um, after repressing Freud, and I, we can talk about why he does that as well. Um, he returns to him towards the end of his life with his last book, which was a lecture that he gave uh, at the Freud Museum in London called Freud and the Non-European. And basically, in this lecture, in this book, Said uh, looks at, in particular, uh, Freud's uh, last book, Moses and Monotheism, right? So I think this is very fascinating in terms of like bookends. Said's last book is on Freud's last book. Both of them die from cancer. Both of them are exiles, right? So a lot of interesting personal overlaps, but also a lot of uh, theoretical affiliation between the two. So that kind of is the, the overview. And then the last chapter of the book, which is the concluding chapter, I kind of write more about what is contrapuntal psychoanalysis and how is it a form of liberation praxis? So that's kind of the structure, I think, as an overview. What is uh, contrapuntal psychoanalysis? <laughs> okay, that's a good question. Um, so this is a term uh, from contrapuntal uh, is a term from Edward Said, uh, and he it's a term that comes from music theory. So counterpoint uh, is when you have two different melodies occurring at the same time, and with that happening, uh, and if you know you're a good composer and you can do this, um, the result ends up being very interesting rhythmically, but also harmonically, right? Uh, even though the two separate melodies may look like they don't fit together, but once you kind of overlap them, something interesting happens. So Edward Said was loved classical music. He wrote about it and he used this concept to kind of talk about a reading strategy that he developed in his sequel to Orientalism, which is called Culture and Imperialism. And he published that book in the nineties. Orientalism was published in the late seventies. And so, um, that sequel, Culture and Imperialism, uh, was basically, he wrote it to address the critiques that he received for Orientalism, but it took him a long time to get to it. Um, and basically just, to, I think it's important to, to understand how the two are related. So in Orientalism, Edward Said um, looks at uh, basically how Europeans think about, write about the, what, what's called the Orient, right? Um, so basically the non-European world. So he was looking at these kind of stereotypical, uh, we can say phantasmatic or dreamlike representations of the Orient uh, to draw on that connection with Freud. And basically we can say that Orientalism is basically uh, Europe's dream about the Orient. And so uh, in the book Orientalism, what Edward Said does is basically what Freud does in the clinic. Freud an analyzed uh, dreams uh, in the clinic to get to, to, to get at the unconscious 
behind the images or the manifest dream content to get to that latent dream thoughts or basically the words and signifiers that are kind of disguised or um, uh, distorted by the images, right? So that's what we call interpretation. So you can see uh, that Edward Said does the same thing, uh, this form of interpretation, except that he's analyzing uh, texts and looking at kind of uh, the European um, uh, phantas phantasmatic construction of the Orient, right? So that's kind of a fascinating parallel. The critique that he received for that book is that he did a great job deconstructing the um, these Orientalist representations, but he did not at all look at how the Orient represents itself, right? That's the, the critique. So he addressed this critique with, in culture and imperialism. And basically that book uh, shows how, um, you know, uh, people in the so-called Orient represent themselves through literature uh, and, and uh, other forms of representation and how that form of, how these forms of representation constitute basically um, practices of resistance to uh, cultural or linguistic imperialism. So uh, going back to counterpoint and contrapuntal reading strategy, uh, his point is that when, when you read, let's say um, European texts written in the context of colonialism, you can analyze um, those texts and kind of uh, see the hidden colonial dimensions that are kind of alluded to, but uh, in a kind of indirect way, sort of like the way we would interpret a dream and be able to analyze that colonial dimension, but also get to um, resistance uh, within that text, but also looking at other texts uh, from other parts of the world that resist that dominant form of literature. So in other words, his point is let's be dialectical about the way we read texts. Uh, and in a way, I, I see that as his way of being against the, you know, canceling, let's say, um, dominant uh, cultural expressions from Euro-America or what have you. So he's saying, well, let's read jo Joseph Conrad. His first book was on Joseph Conrad, right? Uh, but also, let's read Nagib Mahfouz, right? or Nawal al-Sadawi, or what have you. And so let's do both. So the way I use it in the book is I talk about what's called colonial psychoanalysis or post-colonial psychoanalysis, and I group the two kind of together. Um, and so this, is, this will sound controversial, but I, for me, what we think is normal psychoanalysis, I call colonial psychoanalysis pretty much. And the reason is, um, we can ask this question, what are the conditions under which the unconscious was discovered or invented, right? So unconscious wasn't just uh, invented anywhere in the world. It was invented in a specific part of the world at a specific moment in history. So we have to kind of situate it within uh, the long history of modernity and how modernity is linked with coloniality. And if we do this, that doesn't mean we cancel psychoanalysis we actually try to analyze that colonial dimension in order to delink from it, right? So in a contrapuntal psychoanalytic analysis, the idea is to look at post or colonial psychoanalysis and also look at decolonial psychoanalysis and be able to account for both at the same time in your analysis, right? Um, and that's, that's kind of the dialectical move here. So. Um, that's kind of generally uh, the point, but I can give you a specific example if you want to kind of get a more concrete uh, sure. understanding. Yeah, okay. Because it sounds very abstract, I know. Um, so I guess here it would be interesting to introduce uh, Fanon's distinction uh, between the zone of being and the zone of non-being, because it's a crucial one for my, for my analysis, right? Uh, and this is something that, of course, psychoanalysis historically hasn't really addressed. Uh, so psychoanalysis, we can say, uh, is situated within the zone of being. Uh, we can associate that zone of being with Euro-modernity, right? Uh, particularly because of the historical experience of uh, colonization of the Americas, of Africa, of Asia, you know, uh, but also uh, because of the uh, historical experience of slavery. 
and how capitalism and the accumulation of wealth goes hand in hand with these forms of uh, exploitation, alienation, and dehumanization, or oppression and violence more generally. Uh, so there's a racism, class struggle, and sexism go together here, right? In, in these kind of uh, systems of oppression or hierarchies. And so psychoanalysis, most of the time, wants to function as if it's not in a context, as if it's in a vacuum unrelated to what's going on culturally, historically, right? I mean, that's, the, I think, the problem. Uh, but we have to situate it within this context, but also being nuanced about it, because Freud obviously uh, was Jewish, even though he identified as atheist. But uh, this is, a, I think, an important dimension, the fact that he was, let's say, uh, you know, an exilic marginal person or um, someone that had a different subjectivity than, let's say, the majority of people in his society. And of course, as we all know, uh, the Nazis annexed Austria and he had to flee to the United Kingdom uh, with his family and his things. And, you know, so, you know, anti-Semitism was a very real uh, thing uh, during his time. Um, so there's a kind of a liberatory potential there. And of course, others have written about this and the kind of um, liberatory potential also in terms of the free clinics, the early free clinics. Um, and, and so there's that dimension, but also we have to be to reckon with the other modern colonial dimension. And so uh, if we situate psychoanalysis within the zone of being, how do we account for those who are in the zone of non-being? Basically, descendants uh, of colonized enslaved peoples or people who are currently uh, being oppressed in societies, right? And so we have to have a, a, a different psychoanalytic conception that addresses that. So that means we extend or stretch psychoanalysis, right? Uh, not cancel it. And that's the contrapuntal move as to complexify and be able to see all these dimensions uh, once. And so one good example that I use in the book, and this will be very controversial, but uh, it's my, my point, is that uh, in the zone of being, so this idea from Lacan about sexual difference, right? Uh, that there's a, a kind of a non-rapport between the sexes because logically um, there's a difference in terms of the jouissance or enjoyment. So he talks about um, masculine or phallic jouissance on the one hand, and he talks about also uh, feminine or other jouissance on the other hand. And so that distinction or that situation, I think applies very well in the zone of being. It applies less so when we think about the zone of non-being. And there's a historical reason for this. And this is where the work of Tommy Curry is really actually instrumental. So I'm glad to bring this in. So he has a, a very important book, which whoever hasn't read it, please read it. It's called The Men Not. And in the book, he looks at um, how uh, black males historically under slavery were not gendered. Hence the conception of the man not. Because the slave, and this applies obviously to the, the slave more generally, the slave was considered a thing, was considered an object. And so the slave was not considered a human, right? Uh, slave was subhuman or non-human. And that's why the slave was in the zone of non-being, right? And as a thing, as an object, the slave didn't have a gender. So how does this, uh, the theory of sexual difference apply to the slave, right? That's the question. And there, there, that's why I introduce uh, this conception of colonial difference. And I think, and that's the argument that I make, that colonial difference is actually more primary uh, than sexual difference and actually informs sexual difference. So colonial difference has to do with two other modes of jouissance that I wrote about in decolonial psychoanalysis, but I expand them here, which uh, this is based also on Walter Benjamin's work in Critique of Violence. And so um, instead of thinking about masculine or phallic jouissance, I talk about mythical jouissance, uh, which is uh, the kind of jouissance uh, that is founded upon oppression and violence, whether directly or indirectly. So whether we directly support those things that happen 
uh, within the societies where we exist, or we indirectly or unconsciously support those. Basically, we are neutral or um, bystanders, right? And this is where I'm challenging psychoanalysts and psychoanalysis here, is that we can't be neutral. Uh, we can't, we have to take a stand on, the, on these issues. Um, so that's mythical jouissance. And so uh, it's, it's founded in mythical violence. Uh, uh, and um, basically for Benjamin, who was an anarchist, mythical violence was connected with the state as well. It was connected with state violence. Uh, and so in, in opposition to this, he has what he calls divine violence. And so I, I, I base this uh, for what I call divine jouissance. And I situate divine jouissance in the zone of non-being. Uh, and I associate mythical jurisdictions with the uh, zone of being. So, so psychoanalysis basically has to think about this question of mythical jurisdictions, I think, or mythical violence. Um, so divine violence, what is it? This is a very debated topic, um, but Benjamin does give us some hints in his essay. So he talks about the uh, one concrete example being um, the general strike or what he calls also the revolutionary proletarian strike. And so this is a specific form of strike that's different from let's say striking just to raise your salary. Um, so for him, that would be like a selfish motivation. Uh, but uh, strike a general strike, the point of it is to bring down the system. And as we know, because we've seen those examples uh, even in contemporary times, when you have a general strike, it has such a tremendous effect on the overall economy uh, that it can lead to systemic changes. Ultimately, what he's interested in, Benjamin, is the collapse of the state. And he's coming at this from kind of a Jewish um, mystical angle. And so I connect this with, uh, with Freud as well, because, I mean, if you read Moses and Monotheism closely, you can see also uh, the angle of, uh, in terms of, Jewish, Jewish mysticism, but for Freud, it's more intellectual, uh, in, in, in especially in terms of his identification with Moses. Okay, I talk a lot, so I stop here. I think it's great that you talk about <laughs> so many different ways we could go with, with right. it. I've had so right. many ideas. Um, but one thing I wanted to be sure to mention that I really love, because you recently also had an interview on new books in psychoanalysis mm -hmm. about this new book. And in it, you talk about how the unconscious is not like the subconscious, but that it's always present and kind of hidden in plain sight. And I thought that was yeah. such a great point. So I wanted you to talk about that a little bit, if you would. Yeah, so that's uh, a common uh, misconception, especially uh, because of pop psychology, right? So uh, I find a lot of my students get confused about this. They think that subconscious is the unconscious. Of course, Freud wrote about uh, this distinction and his preferred term for subconscious is pre-conscious. Um, so we can think of the pre-conscious or the subconscious literally as below consciousness in the sense of uh, it's not currently accessible, but it can be accessible if prompted. So the example that I always use with my students, and we can use it with you as well. Do you drive? Uh, Vanessa, I don't know if you have a car and you drive. Oh, yeah. You do? Yeah. So where are your car keys? Oh, I don't have them here. Okay, but you were not thinking about them before I asked you the question. No. But when I asked you the question, you thought about where they are. Yeah. So this is a good, a good example of the subconscious. Like you know where it is, but you're not thinking about it right now. It's right. not in your awareness. Exactly. And so it's related to kind of long-term memory. But what's weird about the concept of the unconscious is that it's outside the framework of memory altogether. And so, and hence the un prefix, uh, it's not sub, it's not below, but it's kind of like a negation of consciousness or outside or not consciousness. Uh, so it's kind of in a negative space. Where is that space? It's not within our long-term memory. It's not within our bodies. It's not within our brains. And these are the kind of, um, problems of kind of framing psychoanalysis as a depth psychology, that somehow in the depth of our psyches, we can locate the unconscious. And I think part of the problem is the iceberg visualization that we see in a lot of introduction to psychology textbooks. And believe it or not, I did a lot of, you know, I have the collected works of Freud. I went through everything. 
he never uses that image. This iceberg metaphor, he doesn't talk about it. He doesn't have it as a figure in any of his works. And yet you look at any textbook, that's always how they introduce the difference between consciousness, pre-conscious and unconscious. So unconscious is that the most of, most of the uh, most of the iceberg that's submerged under the water right mm -hmm. so the psyche is the iceberg and that that's i don't know where that came from that has i'm sure someone researched into it i don't know i just don't see it in freud uh but that's the origin of the 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 mistake and it's ongoing for this reason because it's still being taught this way but the unconscious uh is located uh, between the subject and the big other. So the unconscious is a very psychosocial uh, reality. It's a very psychosocial concept uh, since it's not inside and it's not outside. It's not interior and it's not exterior. It's in between. That's what makes it weird. And so um, the best way of thinking about it is thinking about it in terms of uh, the influences of cultures on, and languages on us and how we internalize those things. And so this is, of course, uh, in, uh, in constant negotiation because we're constantly being exposed to things. Uh, we're not consciously focusing on everything we're being exposed to, but uh, everything we're being exposed to ends up influencing what we say and what we think. Right, and it's a kind of a feedback loop between inside and outside. So that's where we locate the unconscious. Uh, we locate it in the surface. Uh, we locate it in the surface of, of texts. We locate it in the surface of subjectivity. Uh, we don't try to hide, uh, look for it uh, in some kind of uh, hidden depth. Right. So that's what's powerful about that that conception, and we see it in Freud. We also see it in Lacan. Uh, with his kind of more emphasis on language but it's honestly uh, you can see it easily in freud so if you go back to the interpretation of dreams which we began talking about um let's actually talk a little bit about the dream analysis and co co compare it to orientalism if we will is that possible yeah okay so uh, freud's theory is that when we dream of course his definition of a dream is um, um there's an unconscious wish and it's disguised or distorted. Uh, and so that's why we need interpretation or analysis to figure out what this unconscious wish is about all about. So in the dream, you have latent dream thoughts, signifiers, words. Uh, but then the dream uh, disguises, distorts those through what's called the dream work. I compared that to in Orientalism to Orientalist work. This is kind of my conception. Uh, and then you have manifest dream content. So you have images. Uh, so in, for example, in the Jungian approach, they end up focusing on the images and forget about the latent, latent dream thoughts. Uh, the Lacanian approach, this so-called return to Freud is to go back to Freud's emphasis on language, right? So the whole point of interpretation is to kind of do the opposite of the dream work, is to go from the manifest dream content to the latent dream thoughts. So not be distracted by the images of the dream, but try to figure out what these images, uh, what are the signifiers that are kind of uh, disguised or distorted by those images, right? This is what Freud wanted to get at. Um, so it's the same thing with, uh, let's say, contrapuntal psychoanalysis. We try to do the same thing, especially with something like Orientalism or any form of racism, really, right? We have racist imagery. It would be interesting to interpret that and figure out what are the signifiers that are um, holding this edifice together, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, I forgot your initial question. Uh, Doesn't matter, you're talking about yeah. dream analysis and Orientalism. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so um, in, in another connection here that's actually, I think worth mentioning is uh, this uh, concept of aniconism. Uh, so, and it's related to the Jewish tradition. And so uh, in Judaism, but also in Islam, uh, there's a prohibition against uh, representing God or even the prophets. So that's why if you go to a synagogue or a mosque or masjid, 
you will not see representations or as anthropocentric or humanized, humanized representations of God or the prophets. Have you noticed that? But mm -hmm. in Christianity, that's not the case. Uh, so this, this aniconism, um, and there, there's a kind of a history behind it that, that Freud talks about in Moses and Monotheism, since he thinks that Judaism has its roots in an ancient Egyptian religion called Atonism. Uh, going back to um, uh, an ancient Egyptian king called uh, Akhenaten, who was kind of a heretic. And so, you know, there were uh, kind of polytheistic religions at the time in, of his time. And he decided that he's going to worship the one true God called Aten. And it wasn't the object of the sun, but it was what the sun represents as a source of life. Right? So this is the first monotheistic religion, as far as we know, in the history of humanity. This worship of the sun as a source of life. And uh, Freud shows that Moses was uh, a member of this religion. And what he did is he basically took the principles uh, of that ancient Egyptian religion and transformed it into what we now know as Judaism, right? Um, one of those principles is what's called Mat, M-A-A-T, and that's a principle of truth and justice. So that's something that Freud is committed to. So why should psychoanalysts shy away from those questions and say that this is, the clinic, the clinic is apolitical. I mean, the clinic is not acultural, it's not ahistorical, it's not apolitical, right? It's situated within a political economy. It's situated within a culture. The clinic tends to be in a specific language. So all these questions are important. And so uh, going back to this question of aniconism, uh, which is basically a word that means being against icons. So this is something you find in the ancient Egyptian religion of atonism. It's something you certainly find in Judaism and Islam. Um, uh, so it's basically an, ab an abstract spirituality, right? Because you don't want to uh, represent the deities visually. And if you think about it, I mean, the point of why I'm saying all of this is psychoanalytically, isn't that something in psychoanalysis as well, in terms of not being lured by imaginary identifications, mm -hmm. but trying to think about the symbolic and the real uh, uh, dimensions in terms of subjectivity. So that's that's the kind of theoretical origin of that. This this Freud's rejection of the image in the dream, and it's also this rejection of icons. So I think that's interesting to to think about. That's a really good point. Yeah, no, and while you were saying it, it was like all coming to me. Like I was like, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Like looking for the, yeah, looking for the signifiers and the symbolic and the metonymy instead of focusing on these imaginary productions. Yeah. Very cool. So you, f you see that in psychoanalysis, you see it in Judaism, you see it in Islam, you see it in Atonism, which is the, the source of it. So I guess in a way to make it explicit, maybe... Freud is saying that the roots of psychoanalysis are atonism. I love that. And um, I just, because I have you here and you're originally from Egypt, could you talk a little bit about that? Like, I just, it's so fascinating. Like, I know. I guess coming from a place where it's like, like coming from Miami, <laughs> where it's like, all of history was erased and we were taught this like tiny slice of history over and over again like every year in class and it was just like right. there has to be more to life than this <laughs> you know? right. and then coming right. from a culture that's like so rich and so has so much depth in history um that's present yeah of course america does too but it just had been had been erased um yeah. i just am so fascinated by that it's not in public, it's not taught in public schools, as far as I know. But you definitely see it in a place like New Mexico, where I'm located, uh, which is, you know, situated on Tewa land. So, uh, 
we have uh, something like 19 tribes here and and you know they have sovereignty um, and they have their languages and their cultures and they're still practicing them so uh, it's fascinating i don't know if you've been to new mexico have you been i've only driven through when i moved from driven miami through. to california yeah so i i invite you to 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 come with carlin because you know you're not taught these things here but like there's very long history that goes back thousands of years and the descendants of indigenous people are still here and they're still uh, practicing the language and uh, the cultural traditions and so uh, one of the points i make in the book is that those things we don't have to read about because they actually are there we can experience them but we uh, act as if they're not there right or uh, in, in a sense we we deny them or repress them and that's that's the whole point of the contrapuntal move as well is to make psychoanalysis worldly i think this is a good way to link it to my conception is by by showing the colonial and modern dimensions of psychoanalysis um we also have to stretch it expand it and think about psychoanalysis from every part of the world so from an indigenous perspective from a black perspective but also from a global southern perspective or from the perspectives of latin america africa and asia and this is basically my project is um you know obviously the things that are racist within psychoanalysis and they're there let's not pretend that they're not there i mean the biggest one is this conception of primitivity right it's a very it's very much something in freud and it's in later conceptions and it's basically a developmental concept so um you can say it's psychosexual uh but it's also political economic in the sense that the psychosexual dimension is that there are primitive people uh, and that's how usually people uh indigenous people are framed from a european perspective that they're primitive right basically that they are stuck in time in the past and they haven't caught up to modernity that's basically what they mean uh and 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 you have people who are civilized so freud was still using those conceptions um and you can see it today when we talk about developing world and developed world so that's the political economic side of the equation but the root of it is psychosexual. But when we're talking about the third world being developing or underdeveloped, basically we're saying they're primitive, they haven't caught up to modernity, they're not civilized. Right? That language is still there. Mm. So uh, the contrapuntal move would be obviously to reject that, not think in a developmental terms, because this uh, developmental conception is based on a certain linearity uh certain temporality that is specifically european and uh and we can think in different ways we don't have to use that model as the universal one and so who is to say that one culture is primitive and another culture is civilized and at the end of the day what is civilization but uh one of the cruelest things in the world i mean what are the things that happen in the name of civilization right colonization yeah, enslavement. You're, you're destroying the planet yeah destroying yeah. other humans and that's the point about this critique of modernity and always showing that it has a colonial unconscious right so when you have people talking about civilization and spreading uh civil uh values like freedom and democracy in parts of the world that supposedly don't have those things i mean how how are they doing it they're doing it usually through the military through violence by force and yeah, so like there's always but with like exactly. democracy <laughs> yeah and so that's that's the mythical jewishness that i talk about which is psychoanalysis uh unfortunately uh you know in a sense is uh situated within that so it's if it doesn't question it then it's definitely benefiting from it and i think another point too is like the whole problem of like diagnosis and yes. like not seeing people's symptoms as something that's like related to their place in time and society just seeing it as like something biological that's wrong with somebody absolutely and so that's why you know i'm obviously not a clinician 
and so as a critical psychologist, I use the term psychosocial distress to refer to the kinds of symptoms that we might see as a function of the apparatus of racialized capitalism. Of course, those symptoms will manifest differently based on where we're located and what we're experiencing specifically. But ultimately, um, you know, the system in which we exist is a very oppressive and hierarchical one. And so violence is its main tool, right? So imagine, and this is what I try to imagine, and I could be utopian here, but I try to imagine uh, a world that is not based on violence and oppression, that is not based on hierarchy. And how would that world look like? And if, if psychoanalysis would even be relevant in that world? I love that. Part of me wants to stop with that, but I also want to talk about <laughs> your, you as an artist as well. Sure. And also how you mentioned like Saeed, who was coming from like looking at literature and how important I think it is that so many theorists and psychoanalysts are coming from like the arts and literature and film and not just like, you know, psychology and like medicine, because a lot of the most interesting theories come from people that aren't practitioners in that way yeah um so my background before studying psychology my background was uh, in theater music and film those are the things i studied so um i'm an artist first and a scholar second and this is always shocking for people because they uh, now they just associated associate me with being an academic but I'm an academic second. It happens to be my profession. That's how I make money and I enjoy it. Uh, but my true passion is always going to be art. Um, it just, um, you know, I'm not making money from art, which is fine because that gives me more freedom to play and do what I want, right? Because I don't have to, it's not a job. So in a way, I, I think I, I prefer that. Um, but I'm still, I still produce music. I just released like two songs recently. One of them is called uh, Nobody Expects the Lacanian Inquisition. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and the other one is called Satie 2.0 because I, you know, I love Eric Satie. Um, yeah, so those are uh, important things. In fact, uh, to be honest with you, like uh, uh, there's a project I'm working on, a proposal for a project on uh, aesthetics. So. Uh, if it goes through, then that'll be the next thing I work on before finishing the trilogy, uh, the Liberation Psychoanalysis trilogy. So it will be a nice, and you know, I also write about film. Um, and so I teach film too. I'm teaching film scoring next semester, which is going to be fun. Um, so, you know, the artistic creative dimension is there. And honestly, how it manifests in terms of my, my writing? Uh, well, two things. Uh, you know, in terms of knowledge, we're always going to be limited. There's no way we can know everything. And that's fine. We can always learn more and try to be smarter. And, but we have to kind of, you know, accept that we're not going to know everything and it's not possible. We're just limited as human beings. We do our best, right? So how do we resolve this problem? We resolve it with creativity. This is the artistic dimension of my work is that I think creativity, creatively about ideas. And this upsets some psychoanalysts who don't like to think creatively, who like to just do things the way they have always been done and repeat that, which is symptomatic, of course, right? Uh, but I, I think creatively, I just see ideas and I see connections and that's how my mind works. And I try to share that and I hope that people find it useful and interesting and hopefully can lead to new directions. But hopefully another thing I would like to do in the future in terms of my writing style is to write in a less academic way to make my work more accessible. And I haven't done that yet, but you know, I have a background writing poetry, uh, screenplays, plays. So that's my background, it was creative writing. And then I had to kind of in academia adapt to this way of writing and using APA style and all that. And I've been indoctrinated so I need to kind of uh, uh, unlearn all of that and, and, and write uh, 
in a clever way, but write in a more accessible style. So that's a challenge for myself that I'm publicly sharing with you. Good. And the, the Rendering Unconscious book, Hardback, is almost gone. So I'm going to edit together an expanded paperback. And you should send me some poetry or some sort of okay. creative piece for it. <laughs> awesome. Okay, that's a, that's a good idea. Yay. I should do that. I love yep. that. And I also want to mention your translation that you've just done. Yeah, I'm very excited about it. So uh, uh, I translated this. Uh, I mentioned it last time I was on Rendering Unconscious, but now I've signed a contract. So that's the big difference. Uh, so I've signed a contract with Bloomsbury. Uh, and uh, I'm submitting uh, the manuscript the end of April. Uh, so I'm revising right now. And wow, I mean, translation is such a trip. Like, you're not just uh, translating between two languages, but really thinking between two cultures. And um, it's, 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 it's always trippy and interesting to do that. Uh, but it's a book by Murad Wahba, an Egyptian philosopher, uh, published in 1995 called Fundamentalism and Secularization. And uh, it's such such an important book uh i mean it's written uh you know like seven years before uh, 9-11 but it kind of prefigures everything that happens since then and um, so the first chapter he kind of does a an overview of the concept of fundamentalism uh and looking at honestly uh, Christian fundamentalism, uh, uh, Jewish fundamentalism, and Islamic fundamentalism. And um, he's a philosopher, so of course he's looking at it philosophically, historically, theoretically. Uh, what's fascinating is, of course, that he, you know, he's in his 90s, to so touch wood. I'm still in touch with him. He's in good health, but he's excited to see this come to light, and he's very appreciative uh, of this work, and he's very supportive of my, of my translation. Uh, but I think it's very important, and it goes along with my conception of contra punto psychoanalysis, which is based on Said's point, is that we need to think in a worldly way. That's how, uh, my project. Is We uh, cite Hegel, everyone loves Heidegger. Of course, they can be very problematic and racist, Heidegger, especially Nazi. Uh, Foucault, the recent revelation that he's a pedophile, how does that change our relationship with his work, right? But why aren't people engaging with philosophies from other part of the world? Mainly because they're not translated, right? So the books are there and no one is gonna put any effort to learn Arabic and read them. So I have to put the effort to translate it into English so that other you know, people that speak English can, can read it and enjoy it and get a perspective from someone in the global South, someone in North Africa, someone in Egypt that is engaging with European philosophy, but also adding uh, perspectives that don't exist within European philosophy. And that's, that's the contrapuntal move, is to do both at the same time, mm -hmm. right? So let's think about psychoanalysis, European psychoanalysis, but also let's think outside of that and go back and forth, right? So it complexifies, it makes it more interesting. Yeah, so I'm very excited about this, uh, this project, I have to say. Um, um, and I can say more if you want, but that's kind of an overview. Yeah, no, that's great. And that reminds me, because when I talk to my more magical friends and people that are like Senteros and Kimbanda Tatas and di different shamanic traditions, you know, of course they're unhappy with the colonial problem, the project. Um, but the way that they always kind of are reframing is like it, it has happened and now we are here and and now there's like people that are together in the same part of the world that we're not, we're not together before and what can we do with that and how can we like work together and like bring new ideas together in cultures sort of like one erasing the other and enslaving the other but like bringing new things about because of this thing that has already happened Yes, absolutely. And th this project, uh, I mean, sometimes it's called alter globalization or mundialization, which is, you know, globalization sounds good as a word, but ultimately it means the imposition of one culture over everyone else it tends to be the American one, because it happens to be the hegemonic one in the world today before it was the UK or Great Britain. Um, 
And, uh, but this idea of ultra globalization is, of course, we have to think internationally and we have to do cultural exchange and all kinds of an economic exchange and all of that, but uh, do it in a kind of polycultural way, not monocultural. Yeah, right? the monoculture is really, really bad. Yeah, it's just boring. <laughs> right? The world is the more IT, interesting. Like all the IT is fed into that, you know? Yeah, yeah. The world is just more complex and interesting. And, and as someone, you know, you love traveling. So when you travel around the world and you experience other cultures and uh, it just changes your perspective. You see things differently, right? It changes your being. And that's really important, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, even moving here, oh, it's raining, how nice, sun shower. Um, you know, I expected Sweden to be a lot different, but they all watch American movies and American TV and everybody has the internet and everybody speaks English and it's just like, yeah, <laughs> all of us have different. been, uh, all of us have been Americanized, including Americans. <laughs> so it's just, it's just the way it is. I mean, that's just a given. The question is that what do we do next? So like you said, like, um, so I'm, yeah, you know, I, I speak English, so I'm using that language to uh, do something different with it, you know, and introduce uh, uh, non English elements within it too. And right, so that's yeah, what I do in my work. Great idea. Yeah. So we, we know it's kind of like cut ups. It's kind of like what you do. So you, we need to like cut up the, the English language and the American culture and cut it up with other things, other languages and other cultures. You got something interesting, I think. Exactly. I love that. And I look forward to reading that book. Cool. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Robert Bashara. For more, please visit his website, robertbashara.com. That's R-O-B-E-R-T-B-E-S-H-A-R-A.com. You can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, D-R-V-A-N-E-S-S-A-S-I-N-C-L-A-I-R.net or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org. Visit Traparts website, T-R-A-P-A-R-T.net for Rendering Unconscious, the book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. And join us at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. That's V-A-N-E-S-S-A 23-C-A-R-L. Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode.